0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. This episode is part of our series devoted to our September twenty nine interview issue on organelles. I'm your co-host, Kelsey Castle, a second-year graduate student in epidemiology.
2: And I'm also your co-host. My name is Wesley Lewis, and I'm a first-year in computational biology and bioinformatics.
3: And I'm your third and final co-host, Emma Carley. I'm a second-year student in the Department of Cell Biology. And today, we're joined by Dr. Megan King and Dr. Patrick Lusk. Uh, Dr. King and Dr. Lusk are associate professors in the cell biology department here at Yale. And full disclosure, they happen to be my wonderful PIs. So thank you both for being here today.
4: You're welcome. Well, happy, happy, happy to be here. <laughs> okay. We'll be talking over each other through most of this.
3: Sounds good. <laughs> so Dr. King and Dr. Lusk both study the nucleus, one of the many organelles featured in the Organelles issue of this journal. So briefly, um, the nucleus is a large double-membrane organelle found in eukaryotic cells that houses the genome, but this organelle is not simply a storage space for DNA. It's actually a densely packed, highly dynamic cellular compartment involved in many key cellular processes. So we're excited to learn a lot more about this awesome organelle from Dr. King and Dr. Lusk.
1: Um, So to start off, can you please introduce yourselves and tell us about how you became interested in studying the nucleus?
4: Absolutely, so my inspiration for studying cell biology in general actually happened during my undergraduate education at this wonderful school called the University of Alberta in alberta canada um it and essentially uh you know up until probably my third year uh science had been taught primarily as sort of a by rote kind of memorization type of uh uh teaching which was not that inspiring but actually it was actually a cell biology class in uh, i think my junior year uh, where i was finally introduced to what science was all about and of course that's sort of the 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 capacity to make new discoveries right and to um uncover something that nobody else has understood or seen before and so this is something that i hadn't really uh, been taught but finally understood the power of that and i got involved with research at that time and and sort of Um, Got involved with research looking into the transport portals that control all molecular communication between the nucleus, right, the most important organelle in the cell. And and the cytoplasm, which which encompasses the rest of the organelles of the cell. So, um, and these portals at the time were very poorly understood, but they sort of are the def- one of the defining features of the nucleus because the nucleus is such a large organelle, and you have to have tremendous amount of of molecular traffic to to allow um, gene expression. And and so we became very interested in understanding, essentially, how these portals work. And that's sort of continued, actually, um, over the last, I have to say, two decades, though, to my work as an independent investigator in my own laboratory.
0: So I actually came to cell biology much later. I really was much more fascinated by chemistry when I was a high school student. But I also found chemistry a little bit dry. And so when I discovered that there was something called biochemistry that was really interesting to me. I, the idea that I could study chemistry that was carried out by biological molecules was really intriguing. And so that's what I set out to study as an undergraduate. And I, I really loved the field of biochemistry, particularly, pro, particularly protein chemistry. And that's even what I went to to work on for my PhD work. I My PhD is actually in biochemistry and biophysics. And I would say that biophysics training is one of my motivations now for my current work because one of the things that we're very interested in are cellular forces. And that interest in forces really came from thinking about biophysical questions as a graduate student. In terms of focusing on the nucleus, that really came from rediscovering a love of mine from probably when I was 9 or 10 years old, and that was looking through a microscope. Uh, I and like many young budding scientists, was fascinated by taking pond scum and putting it on a microscope and getting out a book and identifying all of the different critters that were flying around and It was during my PhD that I finally uh, was able to take advantage of GFP, green fluorescent protein. This is the protein tag that we put on molecules we're interested in so that we can watch them dynamically in live cells. And that technology was actually only really put into the laboratory setting for asking fundamental questions when I was an undergraduate. And so as a graduate student, it was continuing to become more popular. And I would say my first... uh, foray into looking through a microscope at a uh, GFP-tagged protein in a microscope was really kind of revolutionary for me and really made me appreciate the kind of open approach that cell biology takes, and that is that if you're looking at something for the very first time because you're the first person to make a GFP fusion protein of this really exciting protein, you're going to be able, as, as Dr. Lusk mentioned, to see something that no one else has ever seen before. And you have no idea what that's going to be. So a kind of a prepared mind and setting up an interesting system or assay can reveal anything. And I think that's what really won me over to cell biology as compared to kind of very structured biochemistry and enzymology that I had done uh, up until that point. It turned out that one of the molecules I decided to study, uh, surprisingly, actually associated with these nuclear pore complexes, the portals of transport that Dr. Lascardi introduced. And uh, for me, it was actually watching the nucleus during mitosis or cell division. So the nucleus is in uh, human cells, completely breaks down as the cells are segregating their chromosomes, and then it has to be reestablished in the following cell cycle. And the dynamics of that process as I watched it, taking movies of cells um, using a microscope was just incredibly fascinating. And that's what really sparked my interest in the nucleus as an organelle was the fact that it went through this incredible cycle every time cells divide. Awesome.
3: So um, as I previously mentioned, the nucleus is a very complicated compartment So can you talk to us specifically about what your uh, research in your lab is focused on in this very complex organelle?
4: So we actually, we try to not enter too far into the nucleus. We're very interested in actually the bounding membranes. And again, these um, portals, that the nuclear pore complexes that control all the molecular traffic. And we've been particularly interested in in emerging concepts over the last, um, I'd say five years or so, and the idea that the nucleus um, Isn't sort of this uh, static organelle? Megan mentioned this idea um, during mitosis, where it completely breaks down and is rebuilt. But in most of the cells in our body, it actually this doesn't—they're terminally differentiated. Particularly if you think about cells in your brain, for example, they have intact uh, nuclei that that don't break down, and yet the nuclei are considered sort of these static organelles. But they're actually quite dynamic on the molecular level. And one of the things that We've discovered, is, and not just us, but other groups in the field, is that um, the, these organelles can actually uh, break, have, let's say, micro fractures, if you will, small tears in the nuclear envelope that can actually disrupt this compartmentalization, which is critical for organelle identity, right? We, can, we define organelles by their biochemical constituents. And so the segregation of, for example, transcription, where you make a messenger RNA in the nucleus, from translation from where you make proteins in the cytosol, is established by the integrity of this critical barrier, which, which is the barrier itself is built from the membranes, but also by the functioning of these nuclear pores. And so what we've been very interested in understanding is essentially because this barrier can break down, in particular with uh, different disease states, I'm trying to understand if there are cellular mechanisms that um, cells employ to essentially protect the cell, protect the nucleus um, from this loss of compartmentalization, and we've discovered um, pathways that actually are able to recognize when a, when a, the nucleus, um, the nuclear membranes are breached or when the nuclear pores aren't working properly and start to mitigate that damage. And we think this is important for mitigating um, um, disease actually in, in the context of human disease.
3: Could you talk a little bit about um, how disruption of this nuclear envelope could lead to disease? Like what sorts of diseases are related to to these disruptions?
4: Yeah, so I think that there's two categories. One is uh, neurodegenerative diseases, where um, it's now very clear that in in, uh, diseases like uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS, there's actually a disruption in the integrity of nuclear pores themselves. Um, And, you know, why that ultimately causes disease isn't well understood, but we're trying to understand, essentially, does the does this disruption trigger these surveillance pathways that, that we've discovered in, in more fundamental um, genetic models, like, for example, budding yeast, which has been a fantastic model for exploring sort of the fundamental biology behind the nuclear envelope membrane system. The other thing is, is cancer. So one thing that's clear is that when you do lose the disruption or when you disrupt the integrity of the nuclear membranes, This leads to DNA damage, and it's not actually clear um, necessarily, again, what the cause of that damage is. There's lots of debate in the field as to to what actually causes the damage, but nonetheless, as we all know, genomic integrity or DNA damage is an input um, to cancer, and so we're very interested in understanding, again, how these surveillance mechanisms may actually mitigate that damage, may actually um, make it much worse worse than than it needs to be, and hopefully slow down, uh, cancer progression?
0: So when I first started my group at Yale, I was really motivated by a very fundamental question, and and that is that the nuclear envelope is actually part of the endoplasmic reticulum. So we're talking about it as a separate organelle because it does have this distinct identity. But the outer nuclear membrane is contiguous with the ER membranes, and the lumen between the two membranes of the nuclear envelope is contiguous with the ER lumen. And so, one things we know about membranes from the kind of biophysics side is that they're very what we call compliant. That means that they're kind of very easily bendable and shapeable. And in the ER, for example, microtubules actually template the ER tubules. And so, one of the questions that I'd had for a long time is what prevents the nucleus from—what allows the nucleus to maintain its shape? Because it's not actually an island. It's actually integrated into the cytoskeleton. So those are all of the filaments that give the nucleus structure. And the cytoskeleton actually— is able to deliver force onto the nucleus, and this is important in many contexts. For example, there are many uh, tissues in which control over the position of the nucleus within the cell is very important, and that's actively determined by these cytoskeletal elements. So what keeps the nucleus looking in this, you know, kind of beautiful, round, spherical shape that we're used to seeing when it's actually being acted on by forces? Particularly if we know that the membranes that are really define the nucleus are very soft and malleable. And uh, the answer that—the uh, way we think about that question is that ultimately the mechanical properties of the nucleus are determined by the the chromosomes themselves, right? So the one other unique aspect of the nucleus is that it houses our DNA, and the DNA is in the form of chromosomes. And the chromosomes are massive. They're actually the largest polymer inside of human cells. And... W- the chromosomes also have their own kind of biophysics, and so the hypothesis that we've been testing for the past 10 years is the idea that the chromosomes are actually attached to the membranes, and by being attached to the membranes, they impart their mechanical properties onto this nuclear envelope, thereby stiffening it, and this is important for it, its ability to maintain its integrity so it doesn't undergo these kind of fractures leading to some of the complications um, that Patrick mentioned. And so that's the interface that we're really focused on. We're interested in how chromatin contributes to defining the mechanical properties of the nucleus. That's kind of the yin of the lab. I would say the yang of the lab is related to Well, when those forces are being transduced onto the nuclear envelope and onto the chromatin, is that also important for the chromatin biology? So how does it actually affect what's happening inside the nucleus? And so one context of that is mechanotransduction, uh, testing the idea that forces are directly transduced across the nuclear envelope onto the chromatin to regulate genes in a way that's important, particularly at the level of tissues and organisms. And the other aspect is related to how the kind of dynamics that can be driven by the cytoskeleton are imparted onto chromatin, which is important for gene regulation and also for mechanisms involved in DNA repair.
2: So I appreciate you talking about some of the major interests uh, that have come out of your lab. Uh, Could you potentially follow up with some of the updates that you're most excited about in your research?
0: So classically, we think of organelles as being membrane-bound compartments. That's the kind of original identification of them. But one of the really new concepts in cell biology is that there's a lot of self-organization of really functional organelles that are not determined by being individual membrane-bound compartments. In fact, the nucleus is really the origin of this kind of organization. So it's been appreciated for 100 years that there are different sub-compartments of the nucleus. A good example is the nucleolus, where all ribosomes are being uh, generated and assembled. And that, again, is not a – while that's clearly a compartment that you can see in an electron micrograph, for example, it is also not bounded by membranes. So we've known from studying kind of nuclear organization that there are mechanisms by which cells can self-organize reactions even if they're not in an individual membrane-bound compartment. That concept has now broadened out to a whole list of what I would call the the kind of modern addition to organelles, which are really identified by their functional characteristics and composition. And one of the new concepts is that many of these uh, are organized through a process called liquid-liquid phase separation, So this is an idea that there are intrinsically disordered regions of proteins that are actually functionally very important. Again, this on its own is kind of a revolution. Historically, people felt that the kind of structured, ordered regions of proteins were always doing the the work of a protein and carrying out its function. But instead, these intrinsically disordered regions actually allow molecules to organize with themselves in a way that allows them to segregate out from the other components. So you can think about this as kind of your classic salad dressing, you have oil and water and so if you shake up salad dressing, right, it will, uh, it will then come apart and self-organize into these two domains. And you can kind of think about that being driven by some proteins segregating out from other proteins in the cell. So we are very interested in that concept most recently because coming back to this idea that chromatin is important for the mechanical properties of nuclei, particularly the chromatin that is associated with the nuclear envelope. So if you look at any classic electron micrograph of a nucleus, you'll see that there's very dense chromatin that's associated with the, at the periphery of the nucleus with the inner nuclear membrane. And uh, it turns out from a number of recent studies that heterochromatin, this dense chromatin, has, pro- has these liquid-liquid phase separation properties. This was initially kind of very disconcerting to us because when you think of a liquid, you think of something that's very soft. And we had already found that heterochromatin was important for making nuclei stiff. Um, But that really is a kind of misnomer of how we think about liquids. Most liquids we think about are soft, but in fact, glass is a liquid, right? And that's actually quite hard. And so really in in the physics terms, a liquid is something that has disordered molecules. It doesn't really tell you anything about its mechanical properties. Um, And so the interim, we've kind of come to terms with that, and we're excited about the idea that these phase-separated domains don't just organize molecules, which is really how they've been studied for the most part in the past five or 10 years, but also that they can actually do mechanical work. That means that the phase separated domains actually want to stay in the shape that they have. And if you try to deform them, they don't want to be deformed. And so that actually can impart the stiffness to the nucleus that we've observed uh, with respect to heterochromatin. So this is a really for us an exciting time to consider the mechanical properties of something that was previously understood to mainly be organizing different regions of the cell and these kind of new concept of what an organelle is.
1: Are there other examples of liquid-liquid phase separation that we might have heard of before? or, Or like how did the theory originate?
0: I mean, so the original... I think there have been a number of observations over many years, but as all really interesting and exciting and fundamental aspects of science, things are rediscovered continually. And with new techniques, you really— can get to the molecular details and the generalizable principles that then apply to all different areas of, the, of science. So I would say the kind of landmark paper uh, was a study by Cliff Brangwen, working with Tony Hyman. He was studying p granules in C. elegans embryos, and it was known <coughs> that the organization of these p granules was, is uh, aligned along the axis of the embryo, Uh, early in embryogenesis. And what he did was he basically applied a fundamental cell biological approach, which is, as I just said, to GFP tag something so that you can look at that molecule in a cell and then to take a movie. And what he discovered was that actually the molecules that make up these P granules are very dynamic, and what allows them to accumulate in one axis of the cell and be depleted from the other was actually that the molecules were being stabilized and that these domains that are the P granules were growing in one region of the embryo and dissolving in the other. And the dynamics of those molecules really revealed for the first time these ideas of phase separation. So there's a couple of principles that underlies this. And one of them is that you have this condensation of molecules and the P granules and and kind of the first example that's been well characterized of this. And also that the molecules themselves are actually dynamic. So molecules are moving into the granule and out of the granule. And because he was studying the growth and the disappearance of the granules in different parts of the embryo, it allowed him to really quantitatively describe that behavior. That has now been generalized to lots of different aspects of biology, uh, spanning from T-cell receptor signaling, a something that is studied by our colleague in the cell biology department, Dr. Zhao Le Su, who is examining the role that phase separation plays in the immune system. Um, and a number of Bodies inside the nucleus that involve RNAs, including things like stress granules and other um, organelles that are important for the ability of cells to rapidly respond to stress by changing their proteome involve the regulation of how RNAs are compartmentalized. And I think it only keeps growing. I would say in the DNA repair field, one of the things that we're interested in, there's now the idea that the two ends of a double-strand break are held together by molecules who have the ability to form this kind of phase. So it's only going to, I think, keep showing up as a concept.
2: So it sounds like the role of phase separation in epigenomics uh, and chromatin structure might be more complicated than we've previously thought. Could you speak to that and how it maybe interfaces with epigenomics and genome sequencing in general?
0: Yes, so I would say phase separation has emerged as not being just important for the kind of physical properties of heterochromatin, but there's also the idea now that a lot of kind of classic uh, concepts of what regulates gene expression, I'll give you an example One of the modifications we know that it's essential for uh, productive transcription is the phosphorylation of the C-terminal domain of RNA polymerase II, and it's now appreciated that that phosphorylation probably drives a phase transition. So we've—again, this is like prior knowledge that we've known uh, a lot about the modification, but the assumption was— that that modification was related to kind of classic biochemistry of assembling all the right factors to get uh, you know, productive transcription. And now that's been kind of re-envisioned as actually determining a phase, and that phase may be a mechanism of incorporating all of the factors that might like to partition into that phase and exclude factors that might inhibit the productive transcription. So it, it's interesting to watch really classic knowledge be kind of rethought into this concept of phase separation, which may explain behaviors that we thought we understood, but we understood them maybe more in a test tube or more from CHIP-seq. So, right, one thing that people do is they could use an antibody to phosphorylated C terminal domain. And if you were to do genomics, you would see that that modification is enriched in all the actively transcribing genes. So it was a characteristic But really, its function is probably something that's only been recently understood in the context of phase separation. Yeah, I'm happy that we've had a chance
3: to talk about phase separation. It's such a hot topic in cell biology right now. Um, It feels like every cell biology seminar that you go to, somebody says phase separation at some point or
0: another. I think that that's true. At the same time, I think there's also starting to be a little bit of a backlash where people are seeing phase separation everywhere. And I will just make the point that Most of the evidence for phase separation, or at least most of the biochemical understanding for phase separation comes from in vitro studies, and there are still major questions about not just whether it occurs in cells, because I think that there's good evidence for that, but really what the functional importance is. So that means what we need in cell biology are tools that can dissect the phase separation behavior from the other functions of the structured domains of those proteins. And a lot of that work is yet to be done. And so I think there's a real need in the future for a kind of uh, dissecting the role of phase separation from, with regards to the function of the processes in which it's been implicated.
4: I think there's also room for other phase changes, right? So there's this idea of liquid-liquid-like phase changes, which which Megan just talked about. But there's also evidence that complexes of proteins can, you know, form gels, for example. Um, and actually, one could argue that some of the initial data supporting the concept that proteins, particularly intrinsically disordered proteins, which many of these phase-separated domains are, the constituents are, in fact, these intrinsically disordered proteins that uh, that can form multivalent interactions which allows them to to phase separate um, was discovered earlier than that and actually in the context of the nuclear pore. And this is work done by a colleague, um, Dirk Gerlich in in Germany, who suggested uh, almost 20 years ago the the idea actually that um, the nuclear pore, which is this conduit that controls all molecular traffic, is itself the reason why it can be selective and, uh, into what can go through it, um, which is key to right establishing this n- um, nuclear and cytoplasmic um, barrier, is actually mediated through um, a phase um, property where these, these, these nuclear pore proteins um, form essentially a gel, and they, and they form a gel which is capable actually, at least in a test tube, Recapitulating many of the fundamental aspects of nuclear transport, and that means that it's selective for some molecules, whereas it excludes others. And this is was really pioneering work. And and, and what's interesting is that so it, it's not a liquid. Um, um, on the other hand, a lot of these phase-separated domains that Megan brought up do actually change um, their properties over—and they, they age, actually, and so they can move from a liquid state to a gel-like state um, to an even more solid state. And this is thought to be often a, a continuum um, also related to function in ways that may be also pathological. So in some you, uh, in some cases, these, these domains actually essentially can never be disassembled and they essentially become stationary. And obviously, their dynamics are very critical— um, for their function, and so I think one of the interesting things that we're going to have to address in the future is sort of how these chromatin domains, you know, if they do move to these sort of solid-like states, you know, are there mechanisms to release them from that, and are there ways to potentially clear these um, um, aggregates, if you will, from the nucleus, which is another um, interesting area of of nuclear biology that we're interested in. we're, we're interested in essentially how you are able to recognize and clear damage from within this nuclear compartment, which is generally thought to be segregated from some of the major um, degradative organelles. For example, um, a process called autophagy, which is essentially a, a process where the cell can eat large chunks of the cytosol or even eat portions of organelles. And in order to sort of clear damage and clear stress from, from the cell, and this, is, this is also accumulates with age in the nucleus, but how you actually um, access the nucleus by this cytosolic machinery is actually very enigmatic, And despite evidence that it probably happens, if that makes sense.
1: What do you think the next big thing is that we're going to learn about the nucleus? Um, <laughs> like, what are you anticipating is going to come out next?
0: I think one of the major areas that was really unanticipated and has come from numerous f- fronts over the past probably only five years is the recognition that segregating the what we can think of as the host genome, the genome of the cell inside the nucleus, is really a critical aspect of ensuring that the innate immune system is able to function properly. So the innate immune system has surveillance mechanisms in the cytoplasm which are looking for RNA and DNA because that is a sign that the cell is infected with a bacteria or with a virus. And that leads to innate immune signaling which can lead to inflammation, can bring in the adaptive immune system, et cetera. Those mechanisms, when you think about it, really rely on the fact that the DNA is housed in the nucleus so that it's not surveilled by those receptors that are out there looking for nucleic acids. And so if we come back to some of the concepts that we've already talked about, for example, that you can have these ruptures of the nucleus that expose the DNA to the cytoplasm, if you have defects in these nuclear pore complexes so that you're not able to maintain the barrier of the nucleus properly, these can lead to the exposure of the genomic DNA to this machinery. this is uh, something that I think we didn't really quite anticipate how important nuclear compartmentalization is to prevent uh, inflammation. So this, you can think of this in the context of autoimmunity, for example. You're going to get an autoimmune and inflammatory reaction if these systems fail. Um, the other context of this that was probably not also not anticipate, anticipated comes from cancer biology. So it may well be that these kind of classic changes in nuclear architecture that are known to manifest, particularly in metastatic cancer cells. So all cancer is diagnosed and staged by looking at nuclear size, nuclear appearance, and the kind of appearance of chromatin and uh, nuclear bodies like the nucleolus. And we really don't understand why that's such a good diagnostic, which is kind of very frustrating for people who have been studying nuclear architecture for their entire career. So I think that's a major, big, unanswered question. Um, But to come back to the kind of new horizons of that, one idea is that whatever is a driver of those structural abnormalities, these kind of nuclear ruptures can lead to the engagement of the innate immune system. And that... Uh, which we normally think about in the context of infection, could be really useful as a way that multicellular organisms are able to identify these cells that have manifested with this kind of damage and to remove them. So just like an a, a organism wants to remove infected cells, it also probably wants to remove cells that have undergone this kind of catastrophic damage leading to losses of genome integrity and that it might surveil that by looking for these defects in the nuclear barrier. At the same time, it's also likely that a lot of our cancer therapies, when we irradiate cells, that can lead uh, to failures of mitosis where we don't reestablish the nuclear barrier when cells exit the mitotic mitosis when they would have segregated their chromosomes. And this probably also leads to surveillance by the same machineries. And so there's a new recognition that molecules involved in innate immune sensing, these are molecules like sea gas and sting, which the immunologists have been studying for a long time, are likely very important for cells, for organisms to call bad cells, but also for therapies to work to allow you know, to allow a patient to respond to radiation by actually, you know, killing tumor cells, that those processes are actually dependent on uh, this uh, assessing the integrity of the nuclear barrier um, is probably something that was happening all along when we've developed therapies, but we didn't know that that was the mechanism. And so understanding that mechanism better so that we can actually leverage it more effectively in cancer therapy, and particularly immunotherapy, which is a really rapidly expanding aspect of cancer therapies, is something that really may come back to this fundamental cell biology of the nucleus, which is exciting.
2: Um, So it seems like soft matter physics and just this phase separation question is becoming uh, or is showing to be inalienable to cell biology. Can you talk about maybe some of the challenges that you've faced uh, being primarily biologists and moving into a field now that has historically been dominated by physicists?
4: I, you, I mean, I think that what's interesting is a lot of the early discoveries here were sort of made by physicists working in biology fields. And I think what's really most exciting, I think, about modern cell biology is actually how multidisciplinary it really is. And so... Um, physicists, uh, bioinformaticians, com- computational bio, uh, computer scientists, um, you know, because we have to deal with huge data analysis now, large data sets from, um, from really sophisticated electron microscopy, from really sophisticated high throughput screening and these sort of things that uh, machine learning is really um, a big part of what's coming in, in, in cell biology. So I think that uh, the, one of the most exciting features is actually how multidisciplinary cell biology has, has become. Megan can comment probably more about that since she works directly with physicists.
0: Yeah, I mean, for me, as I said, I started out as a biophysicist really by training. So it's to me, it's a fantastic development of, of cell bio, that cell biology really needs people who are used to thinking about those aspects of problems. So physicists, you're absolutely right, soft matter physicists are actually – that it's a group of soft matter physicists from which this original concept of phase separation in cell biology arose from. So that uh, you're exactly right that that is a really important lens through which to see these aspects of cell biology. Um, what and and we have been in my own work actually some of the most impactful concepts are coming from soft matter physicists who are studying phase separation in non biological systems. And that's that's been very impactful uh, for us. I think there are some challenges so one of the challenges is that soft matter physicists are used to thinking or have classically described these problems from equilibrium models, which makes a lot of sense when you're working on inert non-biological systems, but uh, living cells are absolutely not at equilibrium. so we really need to work with physicists uh, and we and we and there are individuals uh, in this field that are are making steps towards this to start to be sure that our theory that we're applying to these problems is actually well-suited to the complexities of the biology while not making it so complex that you can't try to use first principles to define and understand it. Um, so in my own work, I work, have worked for eight years uh, with a physicist colleague who's here at Yale, Dr. Simon Mokery. And that has been critical to all of the work that we've done on nuclear mechanics and work that we're doing on chromatin organization. And uh, and so I think that this is going to be absolutely essential. And what I've seen at least is that it can be extremely successful if you just have people who are really driven and interested to work with others across disciplines, and also you need a few people who can bridge the languages of these different fields, but it's been the absolutely most rewarding part of, for me, doing science at Yale has been through these interactions. Uh, with physicists and also more recently with uh, engineers. So we also work with Dr. Corey O'Hearn, with whom we do increasingly uh, simulations, which is an also a really another uh, impactful approach in cell biology. Um, Dr. Tom Pollard, one of our esteemed faculty here, would be the first to say that you don't really understand something until you can derive a mathematical model that can explain the behaviors that we observe in living cells. And I think that uh, that is a a good goal to have, and it's certainly one that we have in our science. So
1: our last question is uh, to each of you. What's your favorite fun fact about the nucleus?
4: (laughs) (laughs) We just talked about this on the way in. I mean, I think... The classic fact, right, which I think is a fun fact, is that you have essentially two meters of, of DNA in each cell, right, that is somehow compacted into a tiny volume, which, you know, a nucleus is sort of six microns in diameter. Um, I think other fun facts would be that I think we talked a bit about nuclear shape. I mean, I think there is this conceptualization in every textbook that you guys have that a nucleus is this sort of round ball, and it turns out there's actually a plethora of different shapes depending on, on cell types. So a lot of nuclei are actually more like squash pancakes. And a lot of nuclei are actually like sort of, you know, beads on a string are really multi-lobed and really elaborately um um uh have very different morphologies and, and the idea is that those morphologies reflect um, the function of those cells. And I think one thing we haven't talked about is, is how, you know, all the cells in our body um, have the same genome, right? And yet they do very different things, right? Our tissues have very unique functions. And I think this is one of the fundamental questions is how does nuclear shape relate to those unique functions? The other I don't know fun- how fun that was. But.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so fun. Uh, the other f- fun fact in the context of this issue that you've put together on organelles is that, as we've already discussed, um, you know, the classic definition of organelles is that they're membrane-bound compartments. But as we've already described, the nuclear envelope is a membrane compartment that's full of holes. Those holes are filled by these nuclear pore complexes. But nonetheless, I think it's actually very unique in that it— you know, it is really not just an intact membrane sheet across which things can only be pumped by channels, for example, or imported through, you know, small channels where unfolded proteins can be translocated. In fact, it has these 50 nanometer diameter holes you know, all throughout it, which is <laughs> which is really big, right? And uh, so while we while it is I mean, one of the classic organelles there really is a whole host of biology that we have to understand and that it has to have to actually maintain that compartmentalization. Uh, And and that's really kind of unique is just to keep in mind that it's not actually an intact membrane um, and how cells then have to be really careful to actually maintain its specific identity. Awesome.
3: So thanks so much to Dr. King and Dr. Lusk for joining us on this episode of the YJBM podcast. Like many scientists today, they are on Twitter. So if you would like to follow them for more nucleus fun, you can follow them at LuskingL, that's L U S K I N G L, and at P Lusk4U, that's P L
1: U S K, the number four, and the letter U. Um there are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being our home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcasts. And thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief Amelia Hallworth and Devin Washi, and the deputy editors for the organelles issue Amelia Hallworth and John Ventura. Finally, thanks to you for tuning into this episode of the Yale General Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts.